You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, small pairs and speculative hands. Hey, Dell, how's it going? It's going really good. How's it going with you this week, BJ? It's going fantastic. I took our conversation on stoicism a few episodes ago to heart, and I created a worksheet, a Google document that ultimately we might actually be able to sell as a tool for identifying your priorities, finding how much time you have to spend on those priorities, setting up smart goals, and then creating an action plan. And the beauty about this worksheet is that you go systematically through all of your priorities. And as you work towards your goals on those priorities, it takes time away from your free time. So it's like a rolling total of how much free time you have and a rolling total of how much time you have to spend on your priorities. When you reach zero, you don't have enough time to fit those priorities into your life. I did this exercise over the weekend and it has brought purpose and meaning to every minute of my day. All right, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, how I binge watch like Bob's Burgers and Hulu. And we could spend time on Facebook and Twitter. Those aren't really my priorities. The things that are my priorities are things I want to spend time on. So I started reading more. I started practicing guitar. I just relearned significant portions of Metallica's Nothing Else Matters, which is an amazing love song, by the way. Such a good song. But all before noon today, I read, I played guitar, I did some chores, I lifted weights, I feel amazingly productive, and I'm encouraged that this goal-setting worksheet is going to set me up powerfully for 2022. And I'm excited to share it with others when I finally put the finishing touches on this sheet. How about you? (laughs) That's really awesome, BJ. I'm not going to claim to be that productive. I had coffee, I had lunch, and I I did some stuff on my computer, and I managed to not break my computer. So uh, yeah, I'm going to call that a productive day. That's success. (laughs) That is success. You always amaze me, you and the other high performers in my life. And I I keep trying to reach you guys' level. And boy, you made me tired just listening to you. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe you could take a look at this spreadsheet and we could walk through it and you could could get there. I, I think that's a great idea. I think I will. So I created this spreadsheet out of a conversation we had a couple weeks ago regarding stoicism. This week's episode springboards off a topic we introduced last week on suited connectors, speculative hands, how to play hands when you're short stacked. And we decided we need to go deeper into the subject about how you can actually play small pairs and speculative hands profitably. Because I don't really think we did it justice last week. We introduced it relative to short stack, but how about real large? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. This topic, as you recall, Literally the next day, I texted you and said, we're going to have to do small pairs and speculative hands as a, as a topic, because when we were going through that, we were talking about stack size matters. And we talked about how that affects your inability to profitably play small pairs for set mining and how it doesn't make sense to call behind with suited connectors when, when stack sizes are too small. But It literally woke me up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my goodness, we didn't explain that that doesn't mean you have to necessarily fold these hands. 
there are lines that we can take that are profitable. And the funny part is, is literally a couple hours after I texted you and said we we're going to have to do this, another fellow student in our Slack group put up there, well, that, yeah, I, I just listened to you guys' podcast and you guys talking about how we can't play these pairs profitably when we have small stack. But how do we go about three betting them? When is it okay to three bet them? So obviously last week's episode created a lot of questions around this. What we want to do is we want to take a look at how we can play these hands profitably, even when we're a little short stack. So the first thing is we want to define what we mean by small pairs. Now, I mean, that seems pretty obvious, but there has to be a cutoff point and we have to be on the same language. For me, small pairs are anything sixes or, or lower. And some people might feel like, well, sevens or eights belong in there. And I don't disagree with that. If you wanted to add sevens or eights into your group of small pairs, that's fine. But for me, sevens and eights, you start to be able to take and have the top end of some straights. You get to take in, have some showdowns where you're going to have the best hand. So I think they can be played as medium pairs as opposed to being played as small pairs. But if you throw them in there, that's fine. So long as the rules governing small pairs are what you use with all the small pairs, that you're not saying, well, I can treat sevens and eights different. If you're treating them like small pairs, then treat them like small pairs. What would you say about the expectation that your small pair might get counterfeit? Does that go into where your cutoff line is? For example, if I'm playing pocket fives and the board pairs with two nines on the board, and there's also an ace, and my opponent has ace-x. Well, now they have a bigger two pair than me, and I'm counterfeit. However, if I play a higher pocket pair, maybe like sevens or eights, there's a, there's less of a likelihood that I might get counterfeit. Does that go into your equation? Well, what goes into my equation is what I'm playing for a range. If I'm going to be three-betting, I'm not thinking about I'm three-betting fours here. My hand may be fours, but what I'm thinking is, this is what I would three bet as a range against this player. So some people might say, oh, you should never three bet fours. Well, I think that here in a minute, I'm going to give some examples of where it's good to three bet the fours. When I'm opening, I don't think I'm opening fours. I'm thinking I'm opening a range here and fours happens to be in that range. So when I get onto a flop that's nine, nine, eight rainbow, it's not necessarily that I am playing fours. I'm playing a range right? So I have a lot of aces in my range there if I'm the pre-flop aggressor. So I'm going to play those fours like I'm playing the top of my range. Because first of all, nine, nine, ace, that's a very static board. For the pre-flop aggressor, static boards are really good for us. It's It becomes very hard for our opponent to continue if they didn't hit that board. The other thing about nine, nine, ace is it's a board that makes it real easy if our opponent continues, especially if it's a rainbow board. If our opponent continues, we're probably facing an ace or a pair of ninth or another pair. We know what we're facing. So it becomes really easy to define what they have. So at least on the flop, we can play our range in the entirety of our range on such a static board. And then we can look at what we want to do on the turn, whether or not we feel like we're against an opponent that we can push off their hand or whether we're against an opponent that we're never going to get off that hand. And that can make a that can do a huge amount of variation on what we're going to do on the turn with that aforementioned pocket force. If it's a player that 
calls every C-bet because they just expect you to C-bet. Well, maybe you can push them off on a turn. And you might, especially if on the turn, we're looking at another card that we feel makes that board more favorable for our range. I do want to add one point to your example of playing pocket fours. And I think this gets to each person's individual level of comfort playing these types of hands. So last week we mentioned about playing pocket pairs with the hopes of set mining when stack depths allow it. If stack depths don't allow for set mining and you don't feel comfortable playing fours post-flop, you can fold. It's perfectly fine for you to not play hands you're not comfortable including in your range. That's fine. You might eventually get to the point where you want to play those hands, but if you're not there yet and you're just unsure how to continue post-flop with a hand like pocket fours, it's fine to just not play it. Absolutely. I agree 100%. So I feel like that, I don't feel like we have to go a lot into the rules of what you need in order to open small pocket pairs, except to mention a couple things. You can open these hands from late position pretty much against anybody. If you got people behind you that are going to three bet you a lot, maybe you're better off not opening your small pocket pairs because, you know, you're going to end up folding them too often and they're not going to get to realize their equity. But as far as in your average game, you're going to find that from the cutoff, the button, you're going to be able to open up pretty much all your small pocket pairs. I just don't flat them, open them, don't limp them. Most of the time, don't limp them. There'll be exceptions to that. We've got a podcast coming up soon on, on when limping is in a sin, but that's a couple weeks away. But the thing is, when I, when is it okay to three bet small pocket pairs? And I, and I, I don't really feel like this is something that I want to recommend as you do all the time, but I, I do want to point out there is time. When you have uh, a short stack that's opening super wide and they're going to be forced to fold a lot of the range and they've shown that they are going to fold a lot of the range to three bets, then you can pretty much three bet these as part of a pulled range. They're too weak for you to want to go post-flop without the advantages of being the pre-flop aggressor, but you don't really have to fold them all the time either. So you treat them like you would the top of your range. You three-bet them. If you're four-bet, you're going to fold them. You're going to fold them. If you're called, you still have a lot of ways to win post-flop. You can go post-flop and treat them pretty much like you would aces until your opponent gives you a reason not to treat them like aces. We're not going to be battling against reaggression here. But you can you can pick up a lot of equity just by picking your spots and doing it wisely. We're not going to be doing this a lot. We're not, you know, if you're three betting every pocket pair you have, you're going to find yourself broke really quickly. Pick your spots, make sure it's against the right type of player. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think there are two big points to really hammer home on that. And one is that it's player dependent. You need to know who your opponent is. You need to know if they're calling stations, if they open wide, if they're capable of folding to three bets, if they're capable of four betting you. Understanding player tendencies is big there. The second part of it, I think, gets to the notion of a well-constructed range and how that well-constructed range provides other parts of that range with protection. If we are three betting smaller pairs and speculative hands, even when we miss the flop, we can take lines to manufacture EV. If it's a very favorable flop for us as a pre-flop raiser, we could almost see bet 100% of our range because it's static. The person who is ahead right now is likely to stay ahead. And the fact is our range 
hits that favorable flop more heavily than our opponent. That's great. If the flop comes down in a way that kind of distributes the equity equally between us and our opponent, no one really has the range advantage, we can still take lines that manufacture EV because we very well may have smashed the flop. You gave the example before we recorded of opening 5-4 suited and the flop comes 6-7-3. Our opponent is not going to think we three bat with something that just made the nut straight on the flop. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, one of the very important things about understanding these hands. When we play them aggressively pre-flop, what happens is they get help from the top of our range, right? So what I mean by that is because we bet them aggressively, we can rep them as the top of our range going forward. So what happens is now we have the ability to rep these as though they're top of range, like they're aces, kings, or queens. And that benefits our range. When we have a static flop, that static flop will benefit our range. But we also have board coverage with these hands. So now when we have that low board, now we can't just be pushed off. We can't just be abused by our opponents. And you're right. They're not going to think that we're going to be three betting with four, five suited, seven, six suited. So the thing is that when they do catch us with those hands, that's going to take and protect the value of our other hands. It's going to make us much, much harder to play against because we're playing a well-constructed range and we're playing all parts of that well-constructed range. So whether we're open raising with these and we're the pre-flop aggressor or whether we're three betting them. By the way, certain parts of what we're talking about really love to three bet with them. Seven, six suited, four, five suited, six, five suited. These hands get to over-realize their equity when they are three bet pre-flop. Whereas if they're called behind, they struggle to take and realize their equity. So we're always trying to take and set up a situation where we're trying to over-realize our equity. Now, somebody told me that over-realizing your equity is something you can't do. It's a BS term. I disagree, but I'm going to give my definition here so everybody understands what I mean. Whenever you can consistently take lines with a hand that is going to lead to it over time gaining more EV than the equity if you just showed all five cards down from the beginning, that's over-realizing your equity. You are literally making more money than the equity said you should have. And you're doing that by manufacturing that EV, by taking these hands that people are afraid to play. Why are people afraid to three-bet these hands? They're afraid to three-bet these hands because somebody might four-bet them and they'll have to fold. Okay. <laughs> you know, you didn't lose your birthday. You just had to fold. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think, and we never mentioned this in our podcast about manufacturing EV, but it is much easier to manufacture EV when you have the initiative in the hand. And the way that you get the initiative in the hand is to be the pre-flop aggressor. You either raise first in, or if someone raises first in, you three bet them. If someone three bets you, you four bet them. If you take the last aggressive action pre-flop, you have just stolen the initiative for the rest of the hand. And it's so much easier to manufacture EV. If you have the initiative and you go post-flop and you find ways to manufacture EV, you're earning more EV than the equity would have you have. 
you know, there, there's fold equity in that's part of how we manufacture EV. I wish there was a term like aggression equity, <laughs> you know, because we get to take and manufacture a lot of EV through our aggression. And, and it's got to be tempered aggression. It has to be planned aggression. So when we're looking at this, I think we've said this already, but I want to make sure that we drive this home. We're not saying take all these suited connectors or your one gappers or your small pocket pairs and three bet them every time you have them. We're telling you that you can pick certain spots when you're in later position where you can three bet them. You can always open these hands from late position. These hands are all openable from late position. The cutoff, the button, let's be very specific here. You can three bet certain players with these and you're going to be able to manufacture a substantial amount of EV against those specific type of players. So what we're looking at, what's that type of player? Well, they're opening too wide, so they're forced to fold too much. They're carrying too much. They're calling too often. They're calling three bets too often. They're calling opens too often. So they're forced to carry too big of a range to the flop and they're going to be forced to fold too much. So. If they're a player that's not folding to anything, then we don't need to play these hands against them. This this isn't the that isn't the player we're targeting with these hands. We're playing against that player that understands when they miss that they don't have a lot of equity and they got there with too many hands that are going to miss. So they're going to be folding way, way too much. You know, as you're talking about playing these speculative hands, it occurs to me that this episode could very well double as a playground for improving people's aggression. People don't aggress often enough. You almost never see people three bet in live games. When I'm playing one three, even when I'm playing two five at my local casino, I don't see people three betting nearly as often as they probably should be. You're going to gain a lot of equity just by sheer aggression and three betting. And and speculative hands and these small pairs are the perfect test bed. They're the perfect sandbox to do this. Everybody knows how to three bet aces, kings, sometimes queens, ace king suited, sometimes jacks. Everybody knows to shove on jacks because that's the <laughs> only way to play jacks, right? I'm kidding. No, but I've seen people say that. I've complained about it on this podcast before. I'm not serious. But what I'm getting at is everybody knows how to three bet when you're at top of range. People don't know how to three bet when you have this merged range, the things that are your middle suited connectors or your middle pairs or even the low pairs. So this podcast could definitely serve as double duty, not just for how to play this specific hand class, but how to be more aggressive at the table. And really, cautionary tale, because I've done this, you need to temper the aggression like Dell mentioned. If you don't temper that aggression and you just blindly aggress into people who know better, they're going to own you and you're going to lose stacks. This is speaking from a guy with experience who lost lots of stacks a couple years ago because I just Hulk smash. That's what I did. And it, it worked every time until it didn't. And I had to learn when it worked and when it didn't. All right. So we've just talked about how speculative hands and small pairs can be played as a test bed for aggression. We can manufacture EV with them. We can lean into our superior post-flop skills against lesser skilled opponents. We know who to avoid. We know to be cognizant of stack sizes. There's a lot of stuff here that we need to be mindful of when we play these hands. 
So are there any tools that we can give our listeners to help them keep all this stuff in mind? I think that there's a lot of tools out there, but I only really came up with one exercise. The next game, when uh, you don't have the proper implied odds to set mine or call behind with these hands, see if you have the right situation to three bet or see if you have the right situation to open raise these hands and see where you can effectively add them into your game. You don't have to do it all at once. Do it a little bit at a time. As far as other tools that I can think of, you can definitely take and do some work with Flopzilla and put these hands up against some other hands. Take your range, not these hands, but your range, but with these range with these hands in it as open raises and put them against the range and run some flops. And what you're going to see is that see it if you take certain lines, what your opponent has to give up. Because you can filter on each level of Flopzilla, and it'll show you the hands that would continue. All you have to do is plug in the information, and there's plenty of videos on YouTube that can show you this. You plug in the information, and you can filter out how many hands are going to be going. You're going to be amazed on how many static flops you're going to see your opponent has to give up. And that's how we take that effective line of being able to continue aggression on the flop and the turn. It's because our opponents have gotten there with too many hands. I have one tool for those of you who aren't willing to pull the trigger and actually execute three betting with these small pairs or speculative hands. Make believe. When you fold, I mentioned at the I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, if you're not comfortable playing pocket fours, it's okay to fold them if you're not comfortable doing so. After you fold, pay attention to the rest of the hand and see if you could put yourself in the shoes of an opponent who's in the hand and say to yourself, all right, had I played this hand, what would have transpired? The flop comes, oh, the flop came a four. Excellent. You could have set mine. How would you have played that to maximize your EV? The flop came completely static. Like our previous example, ace, nine, nine. Well, what do the opponents do? Likely out of position checks, in position bets, out of position folds. It's kind of a standard formation. That could have been you. So put yourself in those shoes. If you choose to fold, and we've mentioned this in previous episodes, when you're not in the hand, stay in the hand. There's so much to be learned by observing. I think Yogi Bear said, you can learn so much through observation just by watching. That's some kind of Yogi Bearism. But as you watch these players play the hand and you folded, just put yourself in their shoes and play the hand as if you were still in it. And by practicing that you will eventually become more comfortable so that you can pull the trigger. So I think we gave three tools. One was actually do it. One was pretend to do it on table. And the third was pretend to do it with theoretical flops that you give yourself in Flopzilla or Equilab. So we have three tools for people to just help get comfortable with this. And really, even if you get, you're going to fail. I think we need to mention that. Whenever you try something new and you screw up, that's fine. You might lose some chips. You might lose some money. Hopefully, you're not gambling with money that you're not willing to lose anyway. Otherwise, you should be gambling. But you're not really losing. You're paying the price of tuition to learn lessons. So just remember that. I think that the thing that you're going to get the most is you're going to get four bets sometimes and you're going to have to fold. Or you're going to bet the flop and somebody's going to come over the top and you're going to have to fold. That's okay. <laughs> you know, folding is part of poker. And if if you're not good at folding, guess what? You're going to lose money. (laughs) 
That's an excellent point. And I want to drive this point home. When people four bet you, when you start three betting more with these speculative hands and pocket pairs, don't think that they're necessarily playing back at you. It's been my experience that nine times out of, well, nine, when I think the opponent is playing back at me, they're not. They just four bet me because they're at top of range. They have aces or kings or ace king suited. Most of the players you encounter, especially at the low stakes, aren't savvy enough to adjust dynamically to challenges. So yeah, feel comfortable folding to the four bet. Don't think, oh man, I got to stand my ground because I can't be bullied with a four bet. You're not getting bullied. Well, I have nothing else to add to this topic. How about you, Dell? I No, not a thing. It's been awesome, BJ. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a good time. So until next week, find some opportunities to add small pairs and speculative hands into your three bet ranges. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. Thank you.